Before I start this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast where we look at the UK government's economic crime plan 2 2023-2026. The plan seeks to embolden work which is already underway, providing a clear timeline for implementation. In this episode, we consider the proposals and the action points in the plan, look to see what people have been saying about it, before I highlight what I think is the perennial omission from all these attempts to tackle economic crime. The plan adopts a three pillared approach to tackling economic crime and these are the focus of this podcast to reduce money laundering and recover more criminal assets to combat kleptocracy and drive down sanctions evasion and to cut fraud the pillars are supported by the addition of 475 new financial crime investigators what is called a new public private prioritization which aims to use the resources of the public and private sectors in the prevention, detection and disruption of economic crime, the adoption of -of state-of-the-art technology to harvest intelligence, a new crypto cell to tackle criminal use of crypto assets, reforms to the UK's supervisory structures, and an expanded combating kleptocracy cell. This is all to be funded by an initial investment of £400 million, with £200 million drawn from the economic crime levy and the other £200 million as central government funding. It's hoped that long-term recovered illicit funds can be reused in the fight against economic crime. So, let's get into the action points. The government commits to completing the legislative reforms of Companies House, so central to, of course, the Beneficial Ownership Register, which came into force in August last year. Specifically, this will involve operational implementation of the reforms and the integration of Companies House into the wider anti-economic crime framework, with delivery over quarters 2 of 2023 to quarter 1 of 2024 This should solidify the role Companies House will have in ensuring that the abuse of corporate structures to facilitate economic crime is greatly reduced. These reforms should support all three pillars of the plan. In specific relation to combating money laundering, the government commits to strengthening Her Majesty's, or sorry, His Majesty's Treasury and OPBAS oversight with the aim of emboldening supervision across anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism regimes in the United Kingdom. They also commit to consultation to deliver a reform package of the UK's anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism regime in order to improve, well that's the language they use anyway, the Money Laundering Regulations 2017. This is more of a medium-term action plan with delivery of all elements by quarter four of 2024 That takes the UK up to the general election territory, and if there is a change of government, I don't imagine it will have a whole host of difference on the position since the opposition parties seem as committed to the fight against economic crime as the government. An element 
of the action plan which is targeted at all three pillars is the fight against crypto assets and their use to facilitate economic crime. The UK is not alone in this, and the US, EU and jurisdictions across the globe have taken an interest in this area. The UK's approach is to embolden the response. The plan includes a commitment to enhance law enforcement capacity and capability to pursue and prosecute the use of crypto-slash-virtual assets to launder illicit finance, and also the closure of systemic vulnerabilities which crypto assets present, though that will, so the plan outlines, require legislative and regulatory review. At a more practical level, the plan looks to enhance technological capabilities across the system. However, technological changes can be lengthy in terms of implementation and in the ironing out of issues. Understandably, therefore, this may take longer to implement, with quarter one of 2025 being the long stop on the changes. The plan continues to nod to the differences or difficulties in the SARS process and commits to the ongoing reforms to their submission, both in terms of the effectiveness of reporting and in the utilisation of information which they provide. Allied to this, of course, is asset recovery. Under this head, the plan proposes a performance framework with a new team to review impact and disseminate best practice. This will be implemented alongside strengthened international cooperation for cross-border asset recovery, together with the delivery of a stable IT platform to replace the joint asset recovery database. The final commitment in this area is to reflect on the work of the Law Commission of England and Wales in its review of confiscation and look at amendments to the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 for any proposed changes which the government accepts. Naturally, sanctions receive a significant focus in the plan, more so, I suspect, than it would have been had Russia not invaded Ukraine. On the proposal specifically for sanctions, the plan commits to the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation in the UK delivering a, quote, published assessment of sectoral threat and identify vulnerabilities relating to financial sanctions, together with maximisation of the impact of new powers and capabilities, with the aim to improve the effectiveness of the UK's sanctions regime. There is also, of course, a commitment to enhance international cooperation. This is something which, I suppose, more or less happens at the moment, but more coordination is to be welcomed, though, of course, that would very much depend on the depth and scale of any international commitments made. For example, individuals subject to sanctions can vary greatly between sovereign nations, but I'd imagine that is at least one area where countries would seek to retain a degree of flexibility. We'll wait to see the detail on that one. Alongside the sanctions commitments are further commitments in relation to the combating of kleptocracy. The combating of kleptocracy cell at the National Crime Agency will receive continued support to ensure that the UK, quotes, has the capabilities required to investigate and disrupt the highest harm individuals impacting the UK. This comes with a commitment to strengthen international coordination to tackle the enablers of kleptocracy, as well as sending a clear message that the UK is not a place to do business if you are on the dodgy spectrum. Now to fraud. 
The first fraud action point is directed at ministerial departments and public bodies, where the Public Sector Fraud Authority, which was established recently, the PSFA, will oversee their performance. This is timely given the scale of fraud against government departments, especially around pandemic-related fraud. Regular listeners to the Financial Crime Weekly podcast will be aware of the number of times abuse of the bounce-back loan scheme, as well as other COVID support schemes, has resulted in action being taken against individuals and others. Central to ensuring that this does not happen again is the PSFA working quotes to improve understanding of the risks and threats they face and mitigate these through prevention and deterrence activity. The PSFA will also have a coordination role, bringing quotes expertise together to define practices, develop standards and develop capability of public servants through the counter-fraud profession, on which the government has of course published documentation. There will also be a global role with similar functions. There are other aspects of the plan, broader than those outlined, but I said I wanted to keep this relatively narrowly focused on the three pillars. However, in terms of the best of the rest, I thought it might be quite useful to quote this aspect of the plan. It's quite a lengthy quote, this, but it does indicate some useful measures that the government plans to implement. Uh, implement rather. The plan provides, and this is a quote, the government recognises that it is challenging to hold corporate bodies to account for their criminal wrongdoings, particularly economic crimes. In November 2020, in recognition of this, the government commissioned the Law Commission to do a thorough examination of the law on criminal corporate liability and set out options for legislative reform. Following the publication of the review in June 2022, we're working in collaboration with colleagues across government to consider the options presented by the Law Commission to increase the robustness of the UK's economic crime protocols to ensure no individual or entity may flout the law through complex organisational makeup and governance or otherwise. The quotation continues, Building on the strongest options presented by the Law Commission to reform corporate criminal liability, the government is committed to introducing legislation on the identification doctrine to strengthen its application to all corporate structures, including large organisations, and deter instances where corporations can evade liability for committing crime, including economic crime. To drive a major cultural shift encouraging companies to do more to root out fraud, the largest crime type, the government is also committed to introducing a failure to prevent fraud offence in the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill that holds companies criminally liable for fraud conducted by an employee where reasonable procedures are not in place to prevent it. Now, I tend to the view that it's really too early to judge the proposals and there are too many variables, not least as to the delivery dates. However, that has not stopped some early commentary. Transparency International welcomed the focus on responding aggressively to kleptocracy and that expanding the National Crime Agency's capacity through its Combating Kleptocracy cell to combat corrupt elites and kleptocrats is a positive step forward. It also highlighted the commitment to transparency of British Overseas Territories, or BOTS, and 
Crown Dependent Territories, or CDTs, as something central to combating illicit asset flows, as well as welcoming reform to AML supervisory structures. However, it was less pleased with the resourcing, with the statement that while the additional 475 new investigators is a step in the right direction, it may not be sufficient given the scale of the problem, a point which was also echoed this week by Maria Nitzero of the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI. Transparency International was also critical of the failure to appoint an independent representative to the Economic Crime Strategic Board. The Law Society of England and Wales has focused on the collaborative aspects of the plan, emphasising the role which solicitors play at the forefront of the fight against financial crime. Central to this is, quote, information and intelligence sharing. Indeed, this theme of public-private partnership, the so-called pooling of expertise, is a recurring one in the fight against economic crime. Consequently, it's unsurprising that it forms a central part of the plan. I will perhaps, however, leave the final word on the initial response to the plan with Margaret Hodge, the Labour MP and chair of the all-party parliamentary group, the APPG, on anti-corruption and responsible tax. We featured them before in the standard editions of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Now, she was really quick out of the blocks. In fact, it may have been before the publication of the plan, so there may have been some advance notice of it from some professionals and others. While the all-party parliamentary group broadly welcomed the government-wide approach to tackling kleptocratic impact on the UK economy, the commitment to a failure to prevent fraud offence in the second economic crime bill was also welcomed. The other thing that was welcomed was the approach to British Overseas Territories, BOTS, and Crown Dependent Territories, CDTs, which will be subject to a public register of beneficial ownership later this year, or at least that's the commitment. However, Hodge was critical of the document as kicking the can down the road when the government could just as easily table amendments to the Economic Crime Bill and thus bring forward many of the proposals. For me, while I would not necessarily disagree with much of those parts which have been welcomed by others, especially the focus on kleptocracy and the review of the assessment and impact of the UK sanctions regime post the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I do have one niggling irritation. And for anyone who listens to the Financial Crime Weekly podcast regularly, they'll probably be able to guess this irritation. The biggest problem which I have, and it's in my view entirely overlooked by this plan, is the lack of education for the masses in how to identify and avoid fraud. If victims are prevented from becoming victims by their own savvy approach to offers that seem too good to be true, then much of the rest falls into place. Within the report, there are two references which might be taken to support this end. They might therefore give us some succour. First, at page four, it provides, quotes, the plan encompasses fraud through the forthcoming fraud strategy and will ensure the public are empowered, whatever that means, to protect themselves against fraud and the harm that comes with it. The next reference is at page 56, and there are more very generic words there. I quote, Empower people to recognise, avoid and report frauds and equip them to deal easily and appropriately with frauds that do get through. Yes, but how? 
Nowhere in the document is the how provided, and it's not as though this issue has not been one which policymakers could not have been aware of if they bothered to look. The matter of digital media literacy, which includes not only understanding the quality of information provided, so-called fake news, but also the ability to identify fraud or potential fraud in all forms of media, has been around for decades. I remember reading articles about it at least 20 years ago. I think the problem might lie in two things. First, the denigration of media studies as a viable skill for the entire population, and secondly, the fact that education in digital media literacy, which seems to stop as children exit the school gate at 18. Clearly, it's a valuable life skill and something which should be part of lifelong learning, and this plan could, indeed should, have provided a clear strategic approach with added detail on how this could be achieved. Digital media literacy is as essential as throwing mud piles of cash at the problem and hoping that some of it sticks. The reports of people becoming victims of fraud, including the eye-watering value or cost of the problem, are all too regularly featured in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that. So for me, a sharper focus on digital media literacy so that people can avoid falling into the victim category would have been a genuinely progressive step. That being said, and with the point on which I think I can conclude, is that I wait with unrivaled excitement to see if the forthcoming fraud strategy promised in the plan, and which I quoted earlier, will address the issue. However, I'm tempted not to hold my breath. That's it for this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm back this coming Sunday with the usual Financial Crime Weekly podcast, so I'll see you then. Thanks very much.